Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration, legal, and border-related issues. I'm Steve Murins. Today, Deanna and I are joined by Asha Koshal, an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia, who works in the fields of immigration and citizenship law, public policy, and legal theory. She teaches courses on immigration law, racism in the law, federalism, and transnational law. In 2019, Asha published a paper in Dalhousie Law Journal titled, Do the Means Change the Ends? Express Entry and Economic Immigration in Canada. It's a great paper which analyzes both how the express entry program works in Canada, as well as the philosophical underpinnings behind economic immigration. The latter is what we talk about today. We also answer some listener questions related to economic immigration, including how long we think express entry will last, whether there should be country caps on economic immigration, how the government could target low-skilled workers, or what it calls low-skilled workers, whether Canada should bring back the Immigrant Investor Program, and what changes we would make to express entry or economic immigration. Now, one thing we don't do is spend too much time getting into the nitty-gritty of how these economic immigration programs work, and I just want to take two minutes here to quickly summarize some of the main ones. To do this, I have opened the Supplementary Levels Plan for Immigration to Canada for 2021. So in 2021, Canada is targeting 401,000 permanent residents, so it is hoping that 401,000 people will immigrate to Canada as permanent residents, of which 232,500 will be economic immigrants. So about half of Canada's immigrants will be economic immigrants. Of the economic immigrants, 108,500 will come through express entry. So about half of Canada's economic immigrants will come through express entry. Now, express entry is, as we talk about in this episode, a points-based economic immigration system. Anyone in Canada who has worked in a skilled occupation for one year and passed a language test can enter a pool, as can skilled tradespeople, as can people who have one year of continuous skilled work experience who get 67 out of 100 points in a ranking system for people who aren't trying to get into express entry based on their Canadian work experience. Those people then enter a pool of applicants who are then ranked on a 1,200-point grid. Every couple of weeks, IRCC invites a threshold of those people to apply for permanent residency based on its points calculation system and how many people IRCC chooses to invite that week. That's express entry in a nutshell, a points-based economic system on top of another points-based economic system. 80,800 immigrants will be provincial nominee program applicants. These are migrants who, or immigrants who are selected based on the province nominating them for permanent residency. There are also Quebec skilled workers, so Quebec has its own economic immigration program. There is a small federal business program that targets self-employed people in athletics and culture, 
as well as a startup visa program, which targets people who are being backed by Canadian venture capital funds, angel investors, or business, Im business incubators. And finally, about 8,500 people will immigrate to Canada through a caregiver program and different very targeted pilot projects that Canada has, such as the Northern Immigration Pilot Project, the um, Agriculture Agri-Food Product, Agri-Food Pilot Program, and finally there is a small economic immigration program specifically for Atlantic Canada. So that is economic immigration in a nutshell. We don't again get into the nitty-gritty of how these points work because as Deanna notes in the podcast it would be very dry you can find this information on the IRCC website or in Ash's paper. Now, with that out of the way, um, I will, you know, we'll get on with our conversation with Asha. If you would like to support the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I can be reached at Twitter at Smurens at S M E U R R E N S. Deanna can be reached at Deanna at McCraylaw.ca, D-E-A-N-N-A at M-C-C-R-E-A-L-A-W.ca, and you can find Asha on the uh, UBC website, and her email address is K-A-U-S-H-A-L at allard.ubc.ca. I hope you enjoy today's episode. <laughs> This is Deanna Okanachoff. You can't recognize me because I have a very froggy voice today, but it is indeed Deanna, and I'm here with Steve Murens, and we are joined today by our guest, Asha Koshal, uh, who is uh, with the um, Allard School of Law, the law school here at the University of British Columbia. And we are going to be talking about her very brilliant paper in the Dalhousie Law Journal, um, which I'm sure Steve will include a link to um, with the podcast. Um, and we're going to talk about it in very general terms, but I commend this paper to all of you because it discusses the express entry system, which, as you probably know from our previous podcasts, is the immigration uh, selection system that we use for economic immigrants, skilled workers. Uh, but I, I think, first of all, what I'd like to do is to, to ask um, Asha what, what inspired you to write this paper and um, to just Tell us a little bit about kind of how you framed up the topic and, and what you've tried to to achieve by by tackling this topic. Yeah, thank you for having me here. Um, and I would just welcome as we go through the podcast for you, to, both of you to jump in at any point if you've got things to add. Um, so the, the title is um, Do the Means Change the Ends? And it was inspired by or sort of framed by this sense that the point system um, had been this, we, Canada, of course, pioneered the point system in the late 60s, early 70s, and it had been in place for a long time and problems were starting to mount with it. And then um, in 2015, the government uh, promulgated this express entry system, this online, um, this online application system. And 
there was a bit of a scramble to figure out what went where in this system. And I think that was in practice as well as in academia, where we tried to figure out where was the original point system? Um, where were those minimum minimum requirements, the regulatory requirements for federal skilled workers? And then what was the CRS system? And what had changed, right? Because when it was pioneered, um, or I shouldn't say pioneered, when it was unrolled, Jason, then Minister uh, Jason Kenney had said, this is kind of like a matchmaking system. And so this is something where employers um, get these 600 points that mean that a person can get pulled uh, into the country or a province can provide a nomination and that's also 600 points. And so um, there, there was just this sort of sense that I had that it needed to be explained, uh, it needed to be analyzed and that there was more going on than what we were hearing in that sort of unveiling of the system, right? That there was, there were things underneath it. Um, and so what emerges in the paper and what I was interested in investigating is how it did much more than what the government was suggesting, right? So the suggestion that it was just managing economic immigration intake, but that everything else was more or less the same um, was not actually the case. And of course it has shifted over time, but it, it changed many things. It changed the selection mode. So of course that was online. Um, it changed the entry criteria, right? So yes, it's true, the point system is still in there, but it layered on top this second point system, this comprehensive ranking system um, that really calibrated uh, the kinds of things that the point system was trying to do, plus additional things in a very different way, which meant that different people were pulled out of that pool than had been under that old point system, right? Um, and then of course, and we can talk more about this as we go, but all of that happened through this instrument called ministerial instructions. And those were also quite recent, right? And, and the use of them sort of ramped up over time. And this was really like their, um, their full form where a whole system along with its criteria appeared in ministerial instructions and couldn't be found in the statute or regs. You had to look at those to understand um, how it worked and how you could get pulled out and how, you know, the, the bi-weekly draws and all the rest of it. So maybe I'll just leave it there so as not mm -hmm. to go on for too long, but it was, um, it came out of this sense that the, the, the advertisement of it as an online processing system was not the whole story. Yeah, and it I seems think to it's me, a timely... Oh, oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I, I feel like... Um, I like the way that you call it an advertisement because through much of the Kenny administration um, of the immigration department, I should say, um, that there was a lot of this kind of branding of what was going on. And I mean, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast is the way, even the way that that legislation started taking on these kind of American style names, you know, that um, that it wasn't just Bill C, whatever it was. It was like, you know, the, um, you know, um, and I, I can't think of some the of these names. The Removal of Foreign Criminals Act. Exactly. The Barbaric Cultural Practices Act, you know, some of these things that told you what to think, not just told you what the bill was for, not the, um, and so, there was so much branding around the express entry system that um, that as a, after a while we started to feel a little bit bamboozled about okay you know 
um, we were told what to think and not just what it was. And so um, this exercise that you went into, this is what was so refreshing for me as a practitioner to read is that we could tell that, um, and, and I think many lawyers did a lot of writing and a lot of lobbying and a lot of advocacy around some of the things that you've condensed so beautifully into your paper. Um, but there are three things that you've you've kind of mentioned that are sort of very separate and distinct ideas. Um, this whole notion of this kind of these economic models, like you talk about the human capital model and the neo-capitalist model. And I think just looking at some of those analytical structures um, and how those worked and how those were modified by the express entry system. So maybe that's one discrete topic. And then the second one is just what happened to the lawmaking process through the creation of the ministerial instructions, which is another entirely separate topic and how that how that was really modified by the use of the express entry system. But the third one is kind of what this means overall for our concept of citizenry. And I think that I think that's another thing that you so beautifully look at and um, that it was really removed from the conversation. It act like the way that express entry came in and kind of um, it's not perhaps that it was something so new and so revolutionary, but it was a catalyst for me, at least for me to want to kind of step back and think, whoa, 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 wait a second. Can we just use this as an opportunity to think about what we actually want from our immigration system? And I guess maybe because the process felt like it was so much being taken out of our hands that it got me more agitated and upset about how it seemed to be happening so automatically. So maybe just as a general framework that we could look at those as three separate topics. And I don't yeah. know, Steve, if you have. Um... Well, and I, I think also that conversation is happening at a timely moment because on February 13, um, the minister invited everyone who is eligible for the Canadian experience class to apply through express entry. And we'll get into what Canadian experience class means, but the points that were required in the CRS, the comprehensive ranking system, went from around 460 to 75 points. And I think the media, as well as your average you know, layperson, struggled to understand what that meant. Um, and you saw reports saying, well, Canada is inviting you know, anyone in Canada, or, oh my gosh, you only need 75 points now. Without you know, a 470 to 75, this must mean that we're inviting a dramatically lower caliber individual without there being really an understanding of how these points are calculated or what they mean. And that's also, as Deanna said, why your paper was so interesting, especially, um, and maybe we can start with this, the, uh, the notion of the three types of economic immigration systems, uh, the human capital model that were in your paper, the human capital model, the demand-driven model, and the neo-corporatist model. So maybe if we could start there with an explanation of just what those terms uh, are. Sure. Um, so maybe I'll actually begin with the idea of human capital, um, which is what underwrote uh, the point system over time. It shifted, of course, between um, lab the labor market and um, the human capital model. But human capital um, was a concept that Adam Smith first came up with, the old economist, um, and he called it acquired and useful talents. 
Uh, it then got picked up in the 1960s by economists and they were interested in tying it to economic growth. So how these acquired and useful talents um, could generate more money essentially, right? Or um, GDP or whatever it was. And so the definition that I use in the paper that comes out of sort of a, a cursory review of the economic scholarship on this is this idea of an aggregation of people's abilities, their innate abilities, um, and the knowledge and skills that they can acquire and develop. And so in the immigration context, there's a lot of emphasis on that piece of it, right? So things they can acquire and develop. So in terms of knowledge, we're thinking um, both about knowledge that informs their skill set and language, of course, language is important. We're thinking about work experience, we're thinking about education. And so the human capital model is an effort to capture those ideas or those sort of vectors or axes, whatever you want to call them. Um, and the, uh, the sort of rationale behind it uh, and behind the point system as it evolved was this notion that these people were well-placed to deal with change, they were highly adaptable, and they could move within an economy. So they could come, uh, and these skills both helped them integrate socially because they had language and they had education and they had work experience, and help them integrate into the economy because the work experience meant that it would be easy to find a job. And if things shifted, them moving through the economy um, and society would be relatively easy. And so this is what's called the supply-driven model. It's where the government selects immigrants based on usually a point system, which is how you measure the human capital. And the Canadian system is the prototype of that, right? Um, on the flip side, you have something called a demand-driven model, which is the second, the second kind. And that's where the employer selects the immigrants and brings that selection to the government. And the government does that sort of admissions piece of, of the immigration equation. Um, and so this is slightly similar or analogous, let's say, to the way that provincial nominations work in the sense that the provinces select and then the federal government admits, does the inadmissibility and, and issues the PR. And so the demand-driven model gives employers um, that kind of, of uh, power or authority or selection authority, I guess. Uh, the idea behind that is that employers um, and business interests and sometimes, um, sometimes labor unions are best placed to know the immediate labor market needs on the ground. And so the people businesses pull um, at, or employers pull will obviously be pulled right into a job and that immediate entry into the job is their integration. Right now they're part of the economy and so follows their integration into society and a neighborhood and so on. Um, and like I said, over time, the Canadian point system, the, the sort of pre-express entry point system did swing between versions of this. It was not always a sort of pure, quote unquote, human capital system. Um, it, it never was a pure human capital system because there was always a role for a job offer inside of it. Um, but there were times when it emphasized that labor market piece more and times when it emphasized the human capital piece more. And in that last iteration that we saw with the ERPA from 2002 onwards, it was quite human capital heavy. Um, with the express entry system, uh, what I'm discussing in the paper is this idea of what's called the neocorporist 
corporatist model, which is kind of a hybrid model between that supply-driven and demand-driven, those two models. It's kind of a hybrid between them. Um, and this was a term that was coined by Koslowski. Um, a lot of this work is done in political science, um, sometimes sociology, not so much law. And in political science, neocorporatism means um, generally that business interests have their interests represented in decision making. Um, in its sort of pure political science form, it means that uh, labor unions might have their interests represented along with um, business interests, which are two different things, right? I use it here in the way that Koslowski does um, to basically describe a, a kind of immigration selection system where there's there are business interests on the one hand and there's a point system on the other. So there's human capital combined with business interests. And to sort of um, refine that a bit, I'm understanding here that provincial nominations are also often a form of a business interest representation in a selection system. So those are regional business interests typically, and part of the um, part of the force behind those agreements and the way that they have um, grown over time. So provincial nominations are a much bigger part of the immigration system now than they were. Uh, is that um, it, it allows provinces to look at their regions and decide what their economic needs are, what their business needs are, and then to offer, you know, the, the nominations based on those needs. So those people hit the ground running, so to speak. So understanding both provincial nominations and the employer role in express entry as inputs or, or representations of, of this business piece or this demand-driven model, what I'm suggesting is that express entry combines those interests with a human capital calculation. Um, when Kozlowski uh, talked about this model or when he explained it and, and sort of coined the term in the immigration context, he was using Australia as his prototype. And as we know, express entry was modeled after the Australian system. It doesn't mirror it exactly, um, but it was modeled after it. And so that's sort of where those three terms come from and how they map onto um, what's happening here. What's very interesting about the evolution of the express entry system is that what was there at the beginning when the express entry system was initially launched and what we have today is quite different because at the introduction of the express entry system, a job offer was a job offer was a job offer. They were all worth the same point value in the system. And now they have articulated so that some job offers are worth 50 points and some offers are worth 200 points and some are worth 600 points. So I feel like, well, you've clearly articulated the anal the anal like the analysis behind these different models it becomes very difficult to understand why some job offers would be worth one set of points and other job offers would be worth, and it could be the same offer. So a job offer with one company could be worth 50 points when you run that job offer through an LMIA, like through a labor market impact assessment. But if you take that same job offer and run it through a different immigration process, suddenly it's worth 600 points. So it's one that of those- That being the nomination. The provincial nomination. Yeah. So it's sort of like where the theory 
makes I mean, I guess maybe it makes some kind of sense when you take it through the economic theory component, but where, again, this bureaucracy has come kind of in, to some degree made a bit of a mockery even of the economics, even if we bought the economics in the first place. Well, I think um, what that touches on, Deanna, is this sort of underlying current of the express entry system, which is the role of federalism, right? And so those provincial nominations, um, and maybe we'll, we can talk more about this later. I don't, I don't want to take us off track. Um, but it, the government now feels, I think the federal government, that it, it is engaged in a cooperative relationship with the provinces. And the provinces have taken on the provincial immigration selection process in a much bigger way, as, of course, both of you know. Um, and so I think there is... As, as, every, as always happens with a federal system, I think there is a little bit of push and pull between how this all works out and the federal government can only control to some extent how it weights a job offer in that CRS system. It can't tell the provinces how to run their nomination systems. Mm. Uh, and because it, it inherited, the, the current government inherited the express entry allocations of 600, um, it also, of course, inherited at 600 points for a job offer, right? In its first incarnation, both of those things gave you 600 points. Right. And then it, it took those 600 points down over time to, okay. like you said, 200 or 50. Um, and I think that 200, my understanding, and, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that that was partly to compensate for, for the way that age was weighted in that CRS system because older people were really um, harmed by the fact that they were older, even if they had excellent experience and, you know, um, they would enter at quite a high level in the economy. And so I, my understanding was that that was partly to try to compensate for that, but that might not be right. I think yeah, it's I more. No, I think it's the more. age part, but it was just to capture, yeah, like those CEOs, um, and the senior managers in the double zero national occupation classifications that the government uses, yeah. um, which has introduced its whole other host of uh, problems. And this is an example of how, you know, these points allocations often don't, they bear a little bit of a tenuous relationship to the reality on the ground where you have all sorts of applications now from people who are either, you know, are you a manager or a senior manager? And that distinction can be worth two, 150 additional points in the express entry rankings. Which, which very frequently makes the difference. Yeah, which led to a program for, I mean, now we're getting a bit off topic, but labor market impact assessments having to shut down essentially the owner-operator category because they viewed it as being so oversubscribed and abused essentially by people striving for those 200 points. Um, so to give an example, like somebody could be a manager of a division at Microsoft supervising 50 to 100 people would get 50 points in the job offer system. Whereas if you were the CEO of a company that planned to start you know, a small store that might employ one to two people, there were all these arguments over, well, is that senior manager? Because you're the CEO of the store, even though you're only 
really just you and maybe one other person and this whole arbitrary nature of how these points and jobs, uh, how these points are calculated. I think um, the other, I mean, I think before we leave the topic of this human capital model versus the hybrid model and the demand model and supply model is just this notion that underlying all of this is the notion that that you can sort of quantify <laughs> these skills and these qualities and that um, that based on things like age and level of education you can quantify the worth or quantify the likelihood that this person will succeed and I was very fascinated um, by what you said about when they did sort of like outcome measurements on economic immigrants in the pre-express entry system, what they came to realize over time is that their outcome measurements were not that good. And that's why they made the transition to an express entry system. Um, and I guess for me, I guess I don't really see and maybe I'm jumping ahead to this notion of what citizenry is for me, is that um, I don't see a correlation between switching to an express entry model as addressing the fundamental issue. Like, can you quantify these qualities in what it, you know, because I think the approach that seems to be taken in the transition from the old system to the new system is that we were just quantifying it wrong. Um, but to me, I guess I just wanted to open this, um, this question is, was it a matter of quantifying it wrong or is it an issue of just this whole idea of trying to, I mean, I always use this word that like, we're trying to like looking at it as a commodification of certain human qualities and certain human attributes in order to say, this is the formula for the perfect Canadian immigrant. Um, so I just wanted to invite comments from either or both of you on this, on this idea. Well, I think that it's like, I mean, it's also their main justification when they brought it out was also as a application intake management system. So they had their old points ranking system in the federal skilled worker and the Canadian experience class, both of which were always oversubscribed. So remember, like the Canadian experience class used to have no quotas, then they kicked out certain occupations like chef or cook. Then they introduced occupation specific restrictions and caps. Federal skilled worker program had like was at one point all occupations that the government considers skilled. And it was 29 occupations yeah. uh, and they terminated the whole backlog and they brought in express entry. So a lot of it to me has always just been this. Well, we view like, I mean, it's to me, it's been the government kind of saying, yes, the human capital model, maybe this, the human capital model works. The German driven model works. There's too many people. And so we've devised this super complicated point system that we can modify at a whim. Uh, to try to just figure out who we're going to select. And there's weird political, like, you know, one day, you know, a job offer is worth 600. Then, okay, we're lowering that, but we're increasing Canadian education. And, oh, you're Francophone. Okay, we're going to increase points now for Francophone and this constant um, back and, like, readjusting and readjusting of the points to meet both political goals and human capital goals 
all the while it just being an issue of there's supply not exceeding demand in terms of who wants to immigrate. Well, I agree with you, Steve, but to me, this goes to the second conversation, which is the one about ministerial instruction. And ministerial instruction is just one iteration of the government having absolute control over them being able to cherry pick immigrants. But it's not just by way of ministerial instruction, it's by way, well, I mean, it is by way of ministerial instruction. They can change anything at any time without any public commentary. And again, that does segue directly into our second thing that basically means there's no rules except for the rules they decide at any given time. And so, but really the whole kind of subtext of there being this economic theory behind the selection criteria to me is just like, because when you, when you look at the federal skilled worker criteria, the federal skilled trades, the CEC criteria, they're all there in the regulations. And they're looking essentially at five criteria, age, language ability, work experience, you know, like the ones that are listed in, in ASHA's paper. And then layered on top of that are the CRS, the comprehensive ranking system criteria that are basically the same criteria whole different ranking system, whole different scoring matrix, all that accomplishes, in my view, is to make it so that no lay person truly <laughs> understands what the selection criteria are and whether or not they have a true path to permanent residence. And so they're making life decisions without any certainty. And it's created an industry where lawyers are required to be involved because nobody understands it otherwise. Um, you know, and um other than the lack of transparency, is there any real economic theory driving this other than these strange intersecting things that get changed on a whim? Like, I just, I, I feel like I want to pour, like, put my pin in the corporate veil of all of this and say, like, it's just kind of a, it's just a bunch of complexity. But um, the theory, um, I feel like, is... And I guess that was my point about the like, yes, it was about 600 points. So now it's really industry driven, but then they took it down to 50. And so it's like, well, then that wasn't the thing that made the difference in terms of whether or not somebody was invited or not invited. Yeah, so um, that's interesting. I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that immigration is always, well, always might be a strong word, but it's calibrated, right? It changes all the time. So it started with the railroad. And then when we were done with the railroad, there were Chinese exclusion acts and all kinds of terrible racist legislation. Um, and so in a way, that's just a characteristic of economic immigration, I think, sort of an enduring one. Uh, and of course, it's possible not to do this very much. And so the U.S. is a, is a country that just weights family kinship immigration much more heavily than it does economic immigration. So most people make it to the U.S. based on family relationships. Um, but once you choose to regulate economic immigration and use it to pull people in, you have to find a way. Uh, you have to find a way to decide who you're letting in. And so, to that extent, it it does. Uh, it is a result of what Stephen described as the sort of supply demand balance. Um, but I think also we have to we have to think about two things. One is, of course, that the the version um, that the conservatives put forward was modified by a liberal government. And so what the conservatives were doing, I think, um, was really responding to some of the problems in the federal skilled worker category, the mm -hmm. sense that the backlog was so big that it had to be wiped out. And that by the time the people uh, at the bottom of that backlog pile were getting in, the jobs that they had been 
um, that the government at that point had thought were necessary for the economy had, you know, they were gone now or they had been filled or so they were arriving into a different context than they had applied in quite different. Right. Um, and then, of course, there were, were you you all know about the credentialing issues, right? And that's a federal provincial issue where the provinces are the ones who um, do the licensing and the credentialing. And so it was a coordination problem um, and the low wages you mentioned. And so I, I think it was an effort to respond to those problems. Um, and and the, the government's response was these sort of two $600 or 600 point trumps one for the labor market, the, the job offer, and one for the PNP. And then the Liberal government came into power and modified that. And I think it was just a part of it growing. As it grew, we saw what worked and what didn't. Right. And and so this is the second piece. I think behind that are these political and legal constraints, such as they are. So Stephen had mentioned that now, you know, francophone um, or, or a strong French language skill can sort of tip the balance for you sometimes in the CRS allocation, or at least give you more points, I should say. And so that was the government deciding that it was important to bolster French-speaking communities outside of Quebec, because Quebec's selection program is so strong, right? Um, and so there was this sense that Francophones were going to Quebec and the small, com- the small communities outside were not receiving enough immigrants to self-sustain. And, and I mentioned federalism already. So these things, I think, operate in the background and constrain right. express entry in ways that are not always legible right on the surface, but are all all operating in those rooms where officials are deciding, well, how exactly do we weight this? And how can we calibrate this to respond to this new concern that we have? Um, I'm not saying it's good or perfect or it's the right way to do it, uh-huh. but I, I think that level of complication that you mentioned is partly just a product of running a system that is this precise, right? That it's tried so hard to exactly like you said, measure the value of a human for the economy and by extension, the society. Right. It's impossible to do. Yeah. Yeah. And the other one that's interesting to note is I guess we could say that express entry is a neo-corporatist model that was imposed on a largely human capital model, whereas the BCPMP has its own application intake management system, which turns it into a sort of neo-corporatist model, but one that's more jobs driven. Demand driven, yeah. Like the BC, I've got the guide uh, open, is a maximum of 200 points, of which 80 are the human capital factors, and 120 are what they call the economic factors, of which the most important uh, is wage. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that ranking system, pretty much like uh, if you've got a job that makes 100,000 or more, it's 50 points. And the ranking yeah. system itself is interesting because points go up very slowly every few thousand to the point that if you make between 97,500 to 99,999, you get 38 points. If you make a dollar more and you're 100,000 and above, it's 50 points. And it's almost mm-hmm. determinative. And I don't know what, where that would rank, like the wage that a job pays. Is that indicative that someone has high human capital? Although that's not, those points are assessed elsewhere. Um, 
and I don't like I don't know if you have comment on where the wage would fall in in all these different models when the government stresses wage that much. Is it just to get tax dollars and that's what's prioritized there? Or where does that factor in these different models? I don't know that I have um, an answer for that, Stephen. I My guess would be that it's where you enter the labor market here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what the government is. Uh, and this goes to sort of the larger question of skills, highly skilled versus unskilled or low skilled. Uh, I think the wage is correlated to the skill level yeah. with, with the idea that people with more skills and higher wages integrate into the economy at quite a high level. And mm-hmm. so you know, the whole transition is easier. Yeah, my sense of it is that the BCPNP trusts the evaluation of the employer into what the actual, what the worth of the employer is, like what the, what the contribution that employee is going to be once they enter the Canadian market, um, that that wage speaks directly to what what their contribution is going to be to the economy, to the company, to the public in general. Um, And so, you know, I feel like they're quite responsive to that. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about the BC program is they have their invitations to apply, but there's been almost this tacit recognition that the points rankings might not match what the province actually wants. So what I mean as the example is there's this tech pilot and the British Columbian government will regularly stress that the tech industry is very important to British Columbia, that its applications will be expedited. And what's interesting is you need a lower points threshold Mm -hmm. to get invited through the tech pilot project than you do if you're in the normal stream by a considerable amount. So even though the, like theoretically, I would have, you know, that's the industry that BC is coveting, and you would think that the points would somewhat match and be higher for tech if those, you know, if the points ranking system actually reflects whatever economic contribution the government wants. But that makes a kind of sense to me, though, doesn't it? Like the fact that something happens to be a knock double O versus a knock O, it really like that sort of goes back to your comments earlier, Steve, where it's like, it's not so much what actual Nash, like knock classification you fit into. It's about the quality of the work. It's how it actually dovetails with the industry, with the regional needs. Oh, yeah. So with maybe the... I'm not like conveying what I want to be like conveying clearly. It's just it's that the points rank the way things are ranked. It to me is a tacit admission that the way the general ranking occurs isn't actually reflective yeah. of economic needs or that's right. Priorities of the government. Yeah. So that's like, an argument I'd make. Exactly. Like somebody with a double O occupation would get a higher score, but that doesn't mean we need more CEOs in BC. What we actually need is more workers who are going to do this particular skill that's in demand. And I think that the BCPNP is more responsive to those actual needs. You know, maybe it's not the highest wage earners. It's more like this is the industry that we actually are in need of. And so I feel like it's a much more qualitative as opposed to a quantitative assessment. Um, And that's what I appreciate about that kind of analysis that's not strictly about numbers um, and, you know, 
Um, and again, I, it's it's a smaller pool, so I understand that they have the ability to get more qualitative than perhaps um, the federal government does. Um, and I guess that's why the federal government has accommodated the provincial nominations because they have the ability to look to regional needs. So, I mean, it is accommodated within the express entry system. Yeah. Um, so we've touched a fair bit on express entry, which is in, uh, just to recap. I mean, we haven't really got like, I don't know if either of you want to do a two minute quick overview on what you actually have to do to get into the pool. Um, I don't know that we want to go into the mechanics of it. I feel like it's so, first of all, it's so dry. And I think that um, <laughs> Hasha has done such an amazing job of putting it together. And I think you kind of need to read it in order to get it personally. But um, um, I feel like if we're going to spend um, more time on express entry as a as a concept, um, I would be more interested in hearing um, Asha talk a little bit about just this whole notion of the use of ministerial instructions and <clears throat> how that figures in so much to the way that express entry works and just to problematize that as an issue, not just for express entry, but for, um, for um, I guess, for economic immigration in general and even just in the immigration scheme as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, so... I remember uh, it, when I was still a student, a PhD student, trying to look for things and not being able to find them in the ERPA or the regs or the guidelines, and finally figuring out that there were these things called ministerial instructions, um, because of course I wasn't in practice. And so what has happened, um, and like I said, ministerial instructions in the express entry context are kind of like the culmination of this lawmaking instrument because this whole piece of economic immigration is now contained in them. Um, maybe I can just start with sort of their history or their genealogy. So they appear in the ERPA, they appear in Section 93 alongside guidelines, right? So there's this mention in the same breath of guidelines and ministerial instructions, which suggests um, both because of that particular wording and placement, statutory placement, and because of how they were used or not used all the way up until 2008, that they were soft law instruments like guidelines, right? So they were they were not binding. They were meant to be guidance for decision makers. Um, and so they might be considered in a judicial context, but they wouldn't have been binding in a judicial context. Um, and what we saw in 2008 was the beginning of the conservative government putting authority to issue more ministerial instructions into the statute. Um, and the first reason they did that was to clear that backlog of federal skilled worker applications. So I think that number was 600,000 um, federal skilled worker applications in a backlog. And in order to set processing priorities and potentially um, reject or clear that backlog in other ways, they put in this authority to allow them to do that. And to some extent, that was challenged in the courts, um, and it was the government was found to have the authority to use these ministerial instructions in this way. Now, the difference, of course, um, even based on that brief genealogy between ministerial instructions and other forms of immigration lawmaking is in that consultation and public process that accompanies those other modes of lawmaking. So obviously, statutory uh, lawmaking is the, the most rigorous. 
And we all know that IRPA is basically skeletal framework legislation, and we find most of what we need in the regs. Um, even the regs are subject to all kinds of publication and consultation requirements. So when you want to change a regulation or the government wishes to change a regulation, and I won't get into the nitty gritty, but we know that people are consulted and you have an opportunity to raise concerns about the way that, you know, a certain thing might work in practice. Um, and then there's another publication and so on and so forth in the Canada Gazette and so on. Um, with ministerial instructions beginning over there with um, with that federal skilled worker backlog and then sort of moving through various other places, we ended up with the express entry system under these ministerial instructions sort of unveiled wholesale, right? Oh, here, here's the express entry system. It's in these, these ministerial instructions um, and this is how it works. And there's just one more layer of, layer of that that I'll, I'll mention. Um, I don't wanna go too, uh, you can ask more, but I don't wanna go too far down the rabbit hole is that the express entry system is both contained in those ministerial instructions um, so that you see where the how the CRS system works and all the rest of it. But it also functions like the biweekly draws are through ministerial instructions. And so that's also a bizarre new um, creation, right? That it's happening under this instrument um, and you go to the internet to, to figure out what it was and where the threshold was set and so on. Uh, so this was, this is entirely unique. And when these ministerial instructions were taking their fullest form, um, Audrey Macklin, who is a professor at the, at the University of Toronto, who's worked in immigration and refugee law for a long time, said, this is like law by decree. This is like the government deciding what it wants the law to be and just you know, unveiling it without comment, consultation, or the opportunity to change it. Um, and, and I think that's the real sense on the ground is that immigration lawmaking has changed as a result. Uh-huh. And maybe I'll just mention one more thing and we can talk more about it later. But this ministerial instructions are also at play in the business immigration programs, right? So the entrepreneur and investor programs were modified into the startup and then the investor venture capital program and then the venture capital program was paused. Um, and so these ministerial instructions are doing a lot of work when it comes to economic immigration. I remember when this transition occurred, um, I was at the time the chair of the Canadian Bar Association immigration section and I just remember the section, <laughs> like I, I don't remember how many submissions or how many hours we spent drafting multiple submissions and trying to make appearances and um, trying to, to provide public comment. And every time we were told, well, this you know, this is not the time, it's when, um, and, and um, anyways, I, I, I really do, um, once again, just want to suggest that everyone read this paper, because I feel like um, the way that, that Asha has described the um, attrition of the democratic process that occurred with the creation of the ministerial instruction, it reflects very much the panic that I felt at the time and have continued to feel um, ever since that we did really lose something at that point in time and that we we haven't got it back. And we, you know, I think that there would need to be a wholesale, I mean, it's, it's very hard once those powers have um, been lost to get them put back because it's very hard for any administration to say, well, I don't want those anymore because it's so easy for them to make changes to the to the rules. 
Um, but anyways, I think it's been so beautifully articulated in here. See, I'm going to show my age a little bit here, but I only started practicing after the ministerial instruction oh my regime was introduced. And oh my so goodness. what was weird to me was when they had the ministerial instructions for the startup visa program and they rolled them into a regulatory amendment and they took it from ministerial instruction to something that's in the regs. And I thought, boy, that's weird. I wonder why they chose to do that. Like it's a, it's wow. when you started, it's such a different um well, it's it's to me like the way that they've done, for example, the caregiver pilot programs to me is another example of the use of ministerial instruction. And I find that very, very upsetting <laughs> because um, this is a very highly vulnerable group of workers. And part of what really is challenging for me is the lack of transparency. And I've talked about it to some extent in terms of like let's say I'm a skilled worker who's trying to come to Canada and I decide that I want to bring my family and I'm gonna come on a study permit and I'm going to study, I'm gonna get a degree, I'm going to then get a post-graduation work permit and I'm going to try and earn permanent residency. And that person says, I'm gonna move my family, I have young kids, when can I get permanent residency? And my advice to that person is, I don't know, I don't know if you ever will. And that is truly my advice, because the way that the system set up is set up, nothing is the law. <laughs> the law is maybe. The law is it will depend on what the system is at that time. And of course, that was always true because it was a regulation and it would have had. But at least in that period of time, it would have taken time for the rules to change. And there would have been transitional provisions and there would have been a democratic process where we would have had the ability to comment if they tried to make changes that would have impacted somebody who had made these investments and these life choices. But now they could change it overnight. And I did have clients who had ready permanent residence applications where they had done their studying and they had, you know, made their investment and they had their kids here and they had a totally eligible permanent residence application. And then they took their points from 600 to 50 overnight and all of a sudden they were no longer eligible. And now they've been here for years and years and they no longer can send their application. So there are dramatic consequences and all this kind of stuff. And I can go oh, on for ages. I'll but give I another uh, quick example, which is I've mm. pulled it open. Ministerial Instructions 10, and I briefly referenced it earlier, Canadian Experience Class. On November 9, 2013, Ministerial Instructions were issued to manage the intake of new applications in the Canadian Experience Class, effective immediately, uh, work experience in six NOC-B occupations, the big one being cook, well, and also chef and bookkeeper, can no longer be used to qualify for the Canadian experience class. So all those people who had 11 and a half months of work experience as a cook, um, which would have qualified, were effectively out of luck as soon as that came in. And they might have had a work permit that was expiring next week and no ability to extend that work permit. And they might have already done a diploma in hospitality that they had spent $30,000 on and their kids might have been in school and yesterday they thought that they had an ability to file a permanent residency application, extend their work permit, extend their kids study permits and they were six months away from becoming permanent residents and all of a sudden they have to figure out how to go home. And yeah. so they're like mass and the same thing they did with the caregiver program where they had these projects that were going to expire in November 2019 and in June they just decided cancelled cancelled and yes they replaced it with something different but the criteria were different and some people who qualified in the old one you know and so like these ruling by decree 
has serious consequences for people. And it's a dem it's a rule of law democracy issue, which is what I think was so important about what you described in that portion of your paper that I don't think the general public understands. Yeah. Um, I think I want to take it in the interest of time to, I canvassed the Twitterverse for questions when I said that we were going to have Asha on. And we got more questions than we can answer. Um, and there's about five That's or because six. because I did too much ranting, Steve. I'm sorry. I couldn't <laughs> help myself. <laughs> no, there were too many. Like I was, uh, I was pleasantly surprised by the amount of uh, emails and tweets that I got with questions. And the first question that I think we should discuss that I think we'll ask is, and I didn't write down the names of the people who wrote the uh, the tweets, um, but to when do you think Express Entry will last? And in the context of today's discussion, I think we can frame this as, do you think we'll see a return from a neo-corporatist model to a human capital model or a demand-driven model? Yeah, so I, I'm not great at predictions, so we'll take this with a grain of salt. But I do, um, my sense is that Express Entry is here to stay, uh, at least to the extent that it is this online intake management system that the government um, keeps telling us that it is, right? Automation is, an, we, you, you both know this, is an, the sort of the new frontier of immigration decision making. Um, one of the things that happened with Express Entry was that a lot of that discretionary decision making that used to happen in even that that point system was foreclosed now, right? So it's quite hard to judicially review express entry decisions because there aren't that many entry points for the officer to decide whether something um, qualifies or not because so much of it is automated or sort of um, third party. Yeah, uh, third party to ECAs and third party to language tests and all that stuff. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, and so that that really has built the efficiency of how express entry works and it allows it to work quickly and most people really appreciate that feature of it i think all of the problems that we've discussed are very real and there are more besides um but i think the express entry system as as a shell is here to stay what happens within it how things are calibrated who it pulls on what basis um and how it is done right it could be moved into the regs uh, it hasn't been, but there are things that could happen within it that might change its content, but it wouldn't change the shell of it. I think this new way of, of pulling people into the country and deciding who, who is allowed in and on what terms um, in economic immigration, I think that part's here to stay. Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, and because unless they completely unless they decide that everyone who's a foreign worker in Canada can stay as a permanent resident which is an issue that disparity between those two numbers um, I just think they'll need a way to manage intake Deanna do you think they'll ever bring it to the caregiver program I think that they'll either bring it to the caregiver program or design something similar for the caregivers yes yeah they're gonna have a selection system for caregivers that is going to be based on something like this i f i feel because i feel like the alternative is and again it's easy to always say they should just admit everyone but assuming we're trying to design things in a world where there are limits on the number of people who can apply their options are either 
managing intake, huge backlogs, or these caps where like, kind of like you see in the caregiver program now where it's limited to the first 2,500 applications or? Well, the only reason it's limited to 2,750 in the caregiver program is because they're creatures of ministerial instruction and those pilot programs by regulation can only be that big. Yeah. So, I mean, who knows if that's the thing, but they, this is just like a breaking news story. They finally started to acknowledge receipt of the applications received at the very <laughs> beginning of the caregiver, the new pilots, which were received in June 2019. I received yeah. I posted AORs. Uh, an A-tip that someone I know. shared. That showed I've already done a news interview, a story. From that? Yeah. Um, I think the end of your mic may have just cut out or was it mine? No, it was me. Coming soon okay. is the, the story from in the Toronto Star about that. Um, another, we got a few questions along these lines. Um, with economic and technological developments in countries in Asia, do you expect India and the Philippines to remain the source of economic immigration for Canada? Similar questions were a few along these lines. Should there be country caps in the future as most economic immigrants seem to just be from a few countries? Yeah, so um, I don't know that I would venture a prediction on the first front. Maybe either of you has, has more to say about that. With respect to country caps, I don't foresee country caps. And I, I say that because of our history of um, well, our quite racist uh, and national origin discriminatory history of capping countries. I don't think there's any room in Canada's legal system and its sort of fundamental rights and rule of law requirements in the charter and elsewhere to say uh, we will only take this many people from this country. Now, I could be wrong about that, um, but my sense is that we there is now a very good sense or a very good understanding of Canada's racist immigration history. And in academia, at least the new frontier of that is thinking about the relationship between immigrants and indigenous people. Um, so, you know, the extent to which we are all settlers and how that interacts with some of that racist immigration history. So that that's a little bit of an aside, but I mentioned that to say that here, in academia, that's where the thinking is at in terms of how we overcome that racist immigration history. That doesn't mean that's where the government is. Um, but my sense is there would be an enormous amount of pushback to putting a country cap on particular countries because the countries it would be capping would be countries from which brown and black immigrants arrived. Yeah. And I, I'm just not sure that that's palatable at this point. I'm going to be a little bit more cynical and say that I don't think that they need to put country caps because their point system already creates the influx of people from certain countries um, in some ways in the sense that if you have certain um, points requirements, it does tend to bring graduates like there are just, I mean, India and the Philippines, for example, produce a lot of graduates from these types of programs. So when you weight graduates with um, or from Iran, for example, with um, with graduate degrees, you are going to um, just by giving weight to those kinds of 
advanced degrees, then you end up producing immigrants from that country. So if you look at it from a substantive equality perspective, um, you would say perhaps our system is not truly equal because it ends up um, attracting um, those immigrants in any event. But if you look at it from the backwards perspective, like in terms of are we going to keep having numbers from those countries, I think unless we change the way of configuring, then yes, the answer I think will be yes. Um, I don't know if that answers it, but that's sort of my backwards way of looking at it. Yeah, I feel like points adjustments. Like one of the stories of Express Entry was how it led to an explosion in immigration from India or of Indian nationals, because they come here, they go to school, they get a work permit. Um, the tinkering with the caregiver program has led to a collapse. Um, like I've just pulled up this some stats from 2015 to 2019, the Philippines went from about 51,000 to 27,000 uh, people arriving. India went from 39,000 to 86,000. Exactly. Um, and and China... I think when you look at, for example, the intercompany transferee, when they changed around and they became stricter around intercompany transferees, I'm sure you would have seen an immediate change to the numbers coming from India because, like, that's um, uh, specialized knowledge when they started becoming much more. Um, strict about who had specialized knowledge, I'm sure you would have seen, because it's just a matter of the way that the companies, those transnational companies are using these programs. Um, you know, those big, huge transnational IT companies from India, when you started to see that they were saying, nope, we don't consider that a specialized knowledge worker, then all of a sudden, I'm sure you saw the numbers from India coming down. So, so again, it's like, I, I think that um, it's not about capping countries. It's about figuring out how they're going to administer existing policy that ends up having a direct impact on countries of origin. Yeah. Or trying to standardize the study permit approval rates. Um, Will Tao on Twitter, mm. who is an immigration lawyer, has been tweeting almost country by country. And wow. there definitely is a clear correlation between well, with the exception of certain countries, study permit approval rates. Wow. And like, like Africa, it's abysmal. Oh my goodness. Um, Middle I'm East, sure. abysmal. Uh, so if there was a way to like get those up, it would lead to more uh, immigration from African citizens of African countries. Um, but I don't see them doing it through restricting well, caps on like this many uh, people from India, this many people from China. Um, That's on the an amazing point, side. though, Steve. If somebody would to GoFundMe campaign to do judicial reviews from the visa office in Pretoria, <laughs> there would be a dramatic change in the influx of of skilled workers from or students from um, from Africa. I imagine. Oh yeah. Um, because any and, refusal I've seen out of that visa office was. Um, was quite terrifying. <laughs> um, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but how do, um, what should the, so the question is often mid-career mid professionals are too old for express entry, can't get sponsored for PMP and not high net worth due to Forex, so they just language, languish on work permits, um, unable to transition to permanent residence, what can be done? And I want to turn this question a little bit into something that has 
sort of bugged me, but maybe I'm incorrect in being bugged, which is how through the different points ranking systems that the provinces and the federal government has, they often all seem to be targeting the same individuals. Um, and, you know, a lot of people will get express entry PNP just for the work permit, for example, that it conveys, even though they already have enough points through the federal stream, that doesn't come with a work permit, the provincial nomination programs do. Um, I guess, A, why do you think that is? And B, should it be completely separated, the provincial nomination programs and express entry, such that they aren't targeting the same people? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. I think there's two pieces to it. One is what can what can the federal government tell the provinces about their PNP programs, right? Yes, yes, that's another add-on. Yeah. yeah, and so I I've sort of gestured towards that already, but this is a delicate dance, um, and of course provinces have ramped up their presence in the immigration. And it is not at all clear that the federal government could rationalize the way this works if it wanted to. Um, so that's one piece of it. I think the other is this sort of general lack of medium and low skilled labor or workers in any of these point systems, right? So we do have federal skilled trades and CEC tries to sort of you know, catch a different kind of person to some extent that has that work experience in Canada. But generally, the reason we have more temporary workers than permanent residents in any given year is because we still refuse to acknowledge that we need to find pathways for lower skilled and medium skilled or, you know, sort of somewhere in, in, in the middle of that um, for those people to enter. And so they come in through these other complicated ways uh, and we are not offering a clear pathway to permanent residents. And so I think that's sort of the... Um, that's something that most governments have not contended with. So across OECD, OECD countries, you see the same pattern of the U.S. is the best example of undocumented immigrants arriving to do all of this kind of work without a pathway. Um, Germany has this long history of having brought in temporary foreign workers who all stayed. And so they, there's this saying, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary worker. So it, that has to be fixed at, at sort of a core level. Canada has to figure out how it's not targeting all the same people, both between the provinces and the feds, but also just within the express entry system itself. There needs to be space for what this problem sort of describes, right? I have a question. Um, I'm not sure if you'll know the answer, but um, do either of you have a sense of what like how much work is done on assessing outcome measurements of of any of the workers who come into Canada because I'm I mean I have been working with caregivers for almost the entirety of my career and my anecdotal impression is that they go on to be some of the most productive members of our society. And I know, like when I walk into a hospital in British Columbia, they like, like, it seems to me that every person on staff, like, you know, 
working in the hospitals and all of the lab tech jobs and all of the um, janitorial janitorial jobs and all of the x-ray tech kind of all of those types of positions are former caregivers like i just wonder are there studies being done on what the long-term outcomes because i feel like a lot of it is being done on what is their economic contribution as caregivers but not on like you know because when they're doing these things like what is the um you know, what is the human capital? I just wonder, like, over what period of time are they looking at it? And also, like, many of the caregivers that I know, their children go on to become doctors. Um, and and I would just love to, to see um, over what timeline are those studies being um, looked at. And, and I mean, again, this takes us back to that conversation about citizenry. And, and um, even when you look at Let's say, for example, the CEO who maybe have a very, a very high tax value, but do they stay in Canada until the end of their career or do they stay here for a two year period and then they move on to their next CEO gig and that maybe is in Germany or wherever else? Um, so I just wonder if either of you have any sense of what degree of human um, like social study is done in terms of this to inform this immigration policy. Well, I don't know how much it informs immigration policy. I'm sure there's a, I'm sure that, I mean, I'm sure if you go onto the StatsCan website, there'll be a table for just about every scenario you could possibly imagine. I've started subscribing to something called The Daily, which are just six little articles that StatsCan does. And so yesterday they had one on the median salary of the children of immigrants who arrive at the age of 10 based on their parents' economic immigration category. Wow. And like gender, like some of the stuff that they throw out race or, yeah, they have like stats, any stat. I mean, I'm pretty sure their stats can, like they've tracked what you're looking at. It's just a question of, has someone gone in and looked at that data to come up with some conclusion? No, I think that's right. Um, there are a lot of, people working for StatsCan, and a lot of those people are academics who are doing studies that then StatsCan draws on, right? Um, so there are sort of these economists that work at this intersection of, of immigration and labor market outcomes and so on. Um, but I think Stephen is right that I like the specifics on that, I don't know. And it's possible nobody did dig into that. It, it's sort of a yet to be discovered field. But this is also uh, sort of a larger piece of and people have said this in, in the media, right, that people who come as family immigrants, so who come through sponsorship or, or as dependents or whatever, are often very productive. And we don't track them in the same way, generally. 100%, we yeah. We don't find out, you know, what they're doing. And it's not to say we should. I mean, I, I'm not sure we all need to be this economic citizen at, at the end of the day. But that we just don't. We don't understand family immigration that way. And so... Yeah. And actually, for the first maybe five years of my career, caregivers were put in the humanitarian social policy category of immigration. And I remember the day that they switched them over and having this whole conversation with myself, like, is that right? Like, do I want them? <laughs> I mean, not that it's uh, up to me, but sort of like, yes, these are productive, you know, like, of course they should be economic immigrants, but again, they're called low skilled workers, even though, you know, like, is that really low skilled? And, yeah. but again, it's, it's really, um, it does kind of challenge some of these concepts we have about, 
um, what is the value that they bring to society and is it about truly their economic contribution or is it about something else and um, but I, I think it takes me back to this question about um, um, it's what you were saying about making a path for these temporary workers is that I think um, it's part of this value equation is that um, I think if we are married to a human capital or neo-capitalist model or whatever the case may be, um, then you have to take the conversation all the way to the end. Um, and then I think some of these categorizations that we've drawn no longer bear um, no longer bear um, bear all the way through because I think that to say that this is an economic immigrant and that is a non-economic immigrant I don't think actually plays out if you actually take the analysis all the way to the end. No, I will stay on that StatsCan study that came out yesterday. The children of economic immigrants perform are more likely to have a post-secondary education and have higher wages than uh, children of the family class and refugee class, but also of the general Canadian population. Wow. So I don't know what that indicates, um, and StatsCan never seems to ask why, but that's at least what the uh, the data shows. You should email StatsCan on your caregiver question. They'll, I'm sure somebody will leap at the opportunity to like dig into the tables and produce like I don't know how often they get emailed yeah. uh, to produce a specific table set. I should. But I have no doubt that they have the data. Yeah, I'm getting much more um, scrappy in my advocacy because I'm frustrated and fed up. <laughs> um, will there ever be an investor program again? So um, we haven't talked about the investor program, which is now, I think, defunct in both Quebec and the rest of Canada. That was a program, and there have been various incarnations of this, where people would uh, make five-year lo interest-free loans to the federal government. Um, and I don't know if I want to get into it now, but there were huge kickback schemes from banks um, to consultants and lawyers who referred banks certain clients under the program. I remember in 20... So the Chris Alexander terminated the program and the entire backlog in 2014. I remember in 2015, a few people who voted... Uh, solely based on whether that program would be brought back and who I think were disappointed that it wasn't. I don't think we'll see a program like that. And I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't foresee any appetite uh, to bring back that program. I don't know if any of you have, or either of you have anything to add. Um, in a future podcast, we can dive into the problems with that program maybe in more detail as it was. Um, but where do entrepreneurs fit maybe in economic immigration in any of these models for the person who is looking to start a business that's not really demand driven, nor does them wanting to start a business really fall into human capital? I, maybe it does. But where is there a role for entrepreneur immigration or where would it be slotted into? Well, right now it's slotted into the startup visa. And that's basically what we've got, right? Um, so th those were just for clarity without, as you say, Stephen, diving into all of the problems with them. There, there was an entrepreneur program and an investor program, right? 
And that investor program was as you described. You basically loaned the government some money for a while and you had to have a certain base net worth. The entrepreneur program was um, largely that you would come and start a business here and that business would employ Canadians and that that would generate growth for the Canadian economy. And that had its own set of problems. Um, the startup visa is a tweak on that, which really prioritizes innovation, right? So this idea, I always call in class the startup visa dragon's den, because you sort of have to find this match, somebody to fund you, as long as you can come up with this innovative idea. Um, now, an entrepreneur type person might not fit that human capital model because they might not have the formal education. You can think of Bill Gates, right? Or, um, or they might not have the formal education. They might not have much work experience. These people might be young because the tech industry is quite young. Uh, so that's what the startup visa is meant to capture. The, the problem from an academic point of view with both of those programs, but maybe more so the investor one, is this idea of coming back to Deanna's point of exchanging citizenship for um, investment, right? Or for entrepreneurship. So yes, you can come here as long as you give us some money. And the investor program was the most blatant form of that. Yeah. Nothing else was really required except that you were yourself quite wealthy and that you provided some money um, to Canada to invest. In terms of whether it could come back, uh, I know that the the pilot, which was the investor venture capital program, the government sort of opened it or unveiled it at Davos and expected this flood of applications. And there weren't, there was not a flood, right? The, the uptake was really low on that pilot. Yeah. The net worth was hugely high. I think it was 10 million. And you were required to give the Business Development Bank of Canada 2 million. So it's a much higher net worth individual than that old investor program. Imagine making that pitch. Hi, we just terminated all of your business applications after you've waited for years when we wanted 400,000. Give us 2 million. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that pitch. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know what incarnation of that is on the horizon or if there is one. I feel like um, immigration, we've talked a fair bit about this whole notion of automation. And I mean, it's very obvious in the express entry setting that they want to turn each human into a score and an ECA, like an educational credentials assessment and IELTS test or cell PIP test scores. Um, so that basically an officer can look at it and be like 69, 42, 38, 24, pass, you know, da, da, da. like it's a widget kind of assessment. Right. And it's sort of the same in terms of like we've talked about this, Steve, just even in terms of the uh, like in terms of enforcement, like we've talked about it in terms of like in terms of making admissibility assessments that we've talked about the ways that procedural fairness has even been so dramatically compromised because of the desire to make prosecutions easier, you know, <laughs> like, and so um, that, yes, it's much easier to make a finding of, of admissibility for serious criminality or um, for, um, you know, and I'll go back, I mean, just referring to some of our previous um, podcasts, um, because of the ease of enforcement. Um, so I would say when it comes, I don't know anything about entrepreneurs and investors. It's the one area I do absolutely nothing in. But I do remember from my days 
with the CBA and doing consultations with immigration is that they know that entrepreneur and immigration has been an ugly file. And if they had a way of turning those applications into widgets, then they would do it. But I remember actually hearing somebody at CIC saying, like, if you could tell us what blood test to take to find the elements that you could find in the blood of Bill Gates and, you know, like, then we would do it. Because I think that they just want clear criteria that's not about assessing somebody's business prowess and somebody's money and whether or not the person that's brokering this deal is a fraud, then we would do it. But again, like there's no way of putting it into a nice quantified version and they don't like qualitative assessments anymore and it's too hard. And so they're kind of like, I sort of agree with what Ash is saying that like, um, they just don't want to do those qualitative assessments. It's gotten them into hot water before. And when they did do them, even though it was kind of like this buy a visa program and there was like it was as close to that as possible. They've spent how long now doing um I mean, misrep um, applications and how many litigation files have you handled where they're trying to take away that status because they think the person is no longer worthy because they didn't stay in the place where they said they were going to go and, and and invest in, even though like it was only one shade different from from like we got your money um, and you didn't stay there for long enough. And now we think that you don't deserve that status. Um, and so um to me, those are very complicated um, questions, and I just I don't think they want to get into it. So I'm with you that um, I don't think they want to touch that with a 10 foot pole unless they have the the DNA formula for what makes a Bill Gates. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last one. Uh, I'm going to say the initial question, then reword it slightly. Do Canadians need to constantly think about what advantages Canada possesses to attract economic immigrants? Can these advantages be quantified so that the immigration system could be designed or adjusted with clear goals. I'm going to reword that to say, you know, notwithstanding all of our criticisms about the point system, if you could change one thing or add one quality that gets ranked or more points or less points for something, um, what would it be? And I'll start since I had the luxury of thinking of the question, um, which is right now there's nothing really good for people who are in the trades because they don't get any education points and the education credential assessment providers uh, don't do assessments of trades or apprenticeships. Um, and I don't actually know how it would be implemented or measured, but something that rep something where an apprenticeship could be assessed um, to reward points along the same lines as a post-secondary degree. And maybe I'll start a company that assesses apprenticeships somehow and does that so that I'll get the exclusive rights from the government the same way Wes and all these other service providers have. But that's what I would introduce. And that's the big complaint I hear is that um, in some countries where apprenticeships serve in lieu of formal post-secondary education, there's no way to get that recognized in express entry? Um, so what would I, so I think I will dream bigger potentially. <laughs> and I would say, uh, so the U.S. has this system called a diversity lottery, where it just takes a sort of small number of people every year, it pulls them literally out of a hat, right? You put your name in and maybe your name gets called. And so 
I, I would build some piece of that into economic immigration. So not not a complete lottery. There'd be some threshold, but an ability to make up a point shortfall, uh, a CRS points th- point shortfall with, you know, a one page personal statement or a, whatever it was mm-hmm. that, yes, it would require a little bit more human power in terms of, you know, resources to read it, but that could allow people to surmount a points um, shortage and still give us a little bit of flexibility to think about these people as human contributors. Yeah. It's like making the essay section in the LSAT. Mean <laughs> That's something. right. That's yeah. right. Or in a law school application, for that matter. Yeah. Wasn't it interesting, but just before Deanna gets to when Trump proposed, I think he called it the Raise Act, which was going to have its own. The U.S. was going to get a points ranking system. And the reaction in the United States was how cruel or racist that would be. And Canada just kind of quietly sat there being like, (laughs) we're not going to pipe up on this one. Um, Deanna, what would yours be? Mm, It's only because you got me on the spot. I'm sure I could come up with something much better (laughs) if I if I had more time. But I have two. The first one is that um, I think that there should be like concrete points for time spent working in Canada in an C or D occupation. Um, you know, and maybe not at the same level, but like if you've been here and working at a, you know, I think that that is still showing that you've spent time and you've actually been employed. So maybe not to like, you know, let's say you're CEC qualified, but you've also got this, you know, you've also spent two years working in an oxy or D occupation. There should be points for that because um, it shows you've worked your way up and you've been here and you've invested. But I also kind of wonder, um, like, um, okay, the second one is that I wish that there was more clarity and predictability around the assessment of whether or not you meet the knock that you're claiming that you're in. Um, So some way to get, like, an independent assessment in advance of like, yes, that work experience falls within that knock so that you're not waiting six months for them to be like, no, because that's where I'm getting consulted most by people who want to judicially review the decision, where six months later, the department says, no, I don't believe you've chosen the right knock. And then they refuse the permanent residence application and they refuse the open bridging work permit. And the person finds themselves here with no status. Um, And I find that I am often successful with those JRs because it's just such an impressionistic kind of evaluation. And the fact that they can't upfront that and be like, yes, we have determined that that is the right knock um, and everything rides on it when you're filing an open bridging. No, that's becoming increasing. I, I, I'm sure it's the same type of issue you've seen where even where CBSC or CBSA or IRCC approves a work permit under exactly. a knock. And then at the permanent residence stage, they basically they say, well, that work permit being issued was an error. Um, So all of that work really wasn't under the right knock, which to me raises a huge procedural fairness issue. But that's there's a lot of standard kind of issues that arise where like somebody has relied on something and carried on and got their work experience. And yet, um, you know, at the end of the day, they find themselves kind of flailing at the end of an express entry application and told that they weren't actually working with authorization, you know, and so. um, So, yeah. Yeah, or self-employment in the CEC. Oh, that's a super vague concept for another just time. Um, anyway, so that was great, Asha. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I remember last 
time I guess there were in-person class I got to do a guest lecture at your uh at the immigration law course that you teach and it was fun I remember most making a comment that our articling student um who was a former student of yours was running the CBA Twitter account yeah. as we were paying her and I had at least when I got back to the firm she said I got like five to ten people from that immigration class that you uh, just taught texting me saying that you were uh you know talking about me at work um but yeah no it's uh hopefully we get back to like in-person life and stuff like that again soon yeah and please uh um send us any other papers of interest (laughs) because that one totally piqued my interest i'm going to be following you from now on (laughs) i don't know if that's good or bad and deanna i would love to have you come to the class too now that we've met so to speak (laughs) Yes. I'm always looking for, um, like I said at the beginning, it's it's hard when you're not a practitioner to do some of this technical stuff with the students in a digestible way, right? Oh, I can't even imagine. I can't <laughs> even imagine. Like it's such an it's such an odd beast working in this. It field. is an odd beast. Yeah. Fascinating though. Mm-hmm. Constantly 